Hello friends, my name is Ian Graham and I'm the pastor of Ecclesia in Princeton, New Jersey. And I am so excited to introduce to you this teaching series, a series that will look at the story, the big story that the Bible is telling from Genesis to Revelation, a series we're calling from Garden City. The story begins in a garden and it ends in a city and is defined at every twist and turn by the love and the presence of God. That God will stop at nothing to be God with us. And so if you've ever tried to read the Bible or you've ever been asked, what what actually is the Bible about? We hope that this teaching series will be a blessing to you. and will be an invitation to see the big story of the Bible and to see your story in light of that beautiful, gracious, life-giving, eternal story. So wherever you are, we pray this is a blessing to you. Grace and peace to you. saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God. And they will be my children. The word of the Lord. Well, I don't know if you can think of the endings of movies or stories that have deeply impacted you. I can think of two that I remember very well. The first one was from the movie The Notebook. Now, if you've been here through the whole of this series, you will realize that that is actually the second time that the notebook has been referenced. So if you're keeping track of literary references, we have like John Steinbeck, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and whoever wrote the notebook. That is the literary lane that we are walking in at this church. Nicholas Sparks, everybody knows that. He will live on forever. And for me, I was on a date with the woman who is now my wife. Senior year of high school. Now... There are, there are things you sort of figure out as you go in your life. And I'm sitting in this movie, and it's a deeply touching story. You know, spoiler alert. I don't know what the, the statute of limitations is on spoilers, but I think we're beyond it. But I won't spoil the ending. It's very touching. And I'm watching the ending of this movie, and I am deeply overwhelmed to the point of tears. Now... I'm a senior in high school. Whatever like trappings of sort of like masculinity, I'm like, I should not be crying at this movie. Now, that's not true, but 17-year-old me doesn't know that, okay? And I am just like crying my eyes out. I'm just like, just like 
man, that's like Sour Patch Kids, really. <laughs> Thanks, thankfully, one of Courtney's dear friends is also overcome with grief at the movie, and she is sobbing uncontrollably <laughs> to the point where everybody else in the theater focuses their attention on her. And I said, thanks be to God, as I'm like, oh, what's wrong with you? The second movie that I, you know, I didn't want to spoil any movies, so the second film I can think of recently was by Terrence Malick. It was called A Hidden Life. And A, a Hidden Life is about a, a man, a, a, an Austrian farmer named Franz Jägersteier, who resisted the compulsion to serve in Hitler's army at the cost of his life. And he has three little daughters. And Malik, the way he, he forms the film, he makes sure that you see the beauty of this man's life. The beauty of what he is trading to serve Jesus, to be faithful to him. And I know the end of the story, but secretly the whole time, I'm just like, come on, allied forces. Get in there and save this guy, even though I know that he's not going to be rescued. At the end of that movie, there's a quote from Middlemarch from George Eliot, and it just fades to black and silence, and you're just like, that was a story. And today, we arrive at the end of a story. And we've been walking through the big story that the Bible has been telling. We've been looking at what Jesus has done for us, and we've been tracing all these incredible themes as we delved into a couple of weeks ago. When we discussed the resurrection of Jesus, the you catastrophe, as J.R. Tolkien talks about it, the biblical story is different from many of the epic tales that we tell in our culture. You see, usually the great confrontation with evil, the answer to the question, is it going to all be okay, is usually answered at the end of the story. But in the story that the Bible is telling, that answer is offered resoundingly by Jesus in the middle of the story. The resurrection of Jesus is the end of the story transported into the middle. And we are invited to live in light of the end right here and right now. Jesus reveals God fully to us. God on the cross crucifies our sinfulness and all the powers of systemic brokenness and darkness that enslave us. And on the third day, Jesus is alive, resurrected. As Colossians 1 points out, he is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the firstfruits, the sign of what is to come. And last week, we talked about how the church is to bear witness of this victory. We are called to live in light of this victory right now. And, and there's something about me, as we've gone throughout this series, we've, we've taught through this series for 12 weeks, 12 weeks telling the biblical story. And I see so many themes, I see so much stuff that I just want to like draw together. And so I made a little uh, pictorial image for that. Chris, if you don't mind putting that up there. Now, these are all the themes that I've kind of seen as we've traced it out. I put this into a word cloud generator. I feel like Michael Scott going to enter it in some film festivals. But how many of you are grateful that I'm not going to try to draw together all those themes into this teaching today? Because maybe you skipped breakfast and want to eat lunch. Um, so today, I want to try to draw these themes together into some happy conclusion that invites you into the story. And if you took all the sin and suffering out of the Bible, you'd be left with Genesis 1 and 2, 
in Revelation 21 and 22. And that's where we arrive today. And what I want to do today is just walk through some of these passages, Revelation 21 and 22, and just draw us in to what God, the hope that God has for us. And it's beautiful that we are in Revelation today, the church historically during Advent, because Advent is the time of longing, of waiting. The church historically is taught through Revelation as a sign and a signal that Jesus has come and he will come again. And today we live in light of that hope. And so I'm going to walk through some of the passages of Revelation 21 and 22. We're going to open the scriptures together. If you have a Bible, you could turn in Revelation 21. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. In Genesis 1, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the deep. The unknown, the primordial darkness, the tohu wabohu in the Hebrew. And for the ancients, the, this place, the sea, was a place of mystery, even of chaos. And the Spirit of God is hovering over it. And here, in Genesis, er, Revelation 21, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God has nothing against the water. It says, the sea was no more. God has nothing against the water. How many of you have read this account before and you're like, why does the sea have to go away? Well, again, for the ancients, the sea was a place of chaos. The sea was a place of darkness. If you pay attention to the, in the gospel accounts, Jesus actually quite likes the sea. In Matthew, Matthew records him constantly walking by the ocean. I think Jesus secretly wanted to be a fisherman during his life. <laughs> Even though he was born to be, so he surrounded himself with a bunch of fishermen. But he's walking along the water constantly. God's got nothing against the ocean. But what Revelation is saying to us symbolically today is that the place of chaos, all that which is disordered in the new heavens and the new earth is no more. All that threatens humanity, all that would seek to enslave us is no more. The sea was no more. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. The Bible starts with a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. In Genesis, God weds himself to humanity in joyful covenant. He says, let us make humankind in our image. And through all of the twists and the turns and the story, God has not given up on his bride. God will not give up on us collectively. And friends, God will not give up on you individually. He will not relent. He will not stop pursuing you. This is who God is. He has redeemed and saved his bride. And now here in Revelation, she is glorious, adorned. We see the church as she truly is. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see... The home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. Friends, throughout this series, we've made the point that if you wanted to boil down the story that the scriptures are telling into one phrase, not simple, or not simplistic, but simple phrase, you could do worse than saying that the, the Bible is about God stopping at nothing to be God with us. The story starts in a garden. God puts his creation, those made in his image, in the place of his proximity. 
He's not the God of the Olympians making a world and then casting it far off. He's not the God of deism that winds up the world and says, good luck to you. God is near. And as we see through Jesus, God is not just near in his majesty, not just near in the ways that he has accounted for things. God is near in our suffering. Jesus goes to the cross to say that there are no God-forsaken places. Because God himself has been to the depths of our sorrow and our suffering. And here in the end, as, as heaven comes to earth, God is with us. His home is with us. This is our forever story. The story starts in a garden and it ends in a city. And what is a city but a bunch of gardens right next to each other? You see, the story was always about God expanding the reality of his shalom, of his blessedness. The city of the new beginning is about proximity. It's about intimacy. It's about nearness. We see God. He is with us. We are home where he is. The Greek word that is used here, skinao, is the same word used of Jesus in John chapter 1 when it says that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Friends, God has always been drawing near. This is who God is. God will stop at nothing to be God with you. He is our God. He is near to where we are. This is the story as we've seen it from the beginning. It goes on in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And in the spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Notice the city comes down out of heaven. And where does it land? On the earth. How often have we been told, and maybe if you grew up in church, this is something that you've wrestled with to some extent. How often will we, have we been told that we will fly away in the end, that we'll leave this body behind, that our soul is going to get out of the prison of our bodies? But that's not the story that the scriptures are telling. Jesus is resurrected bodily. He eats a meal with his disciples to declare what this resurrection life looks like. Heaven comes down to earth. God is not throwing away that which he has made. That which he called good in the beginning is still good. Because God himself is there. He's made his home there. And he's made his home with us. It's not that we'll fly away. It's that heaven and earth will be joined in the great marriage supper of the Lamb. That we are invited into this hope that God will be God with us. And as we'll see, where God is... Death is not. Where God is, oppression is not. Where God is, systemic injustice is not. God is drawing near to his creation. Yet again, the city comes from heaven. Heaven and earth, finally, in unison. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your will be done. The new Jerusalem is the place where that is fully and finally true. It's no longer a prayer of longing, but it is fact. Verse 11. The city has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, the jasper, clear as crystal. It has a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates are inscribed the names of 12 tribes of the Israelites on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates and on the west, three gates. 
And the wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them are the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. In ancient cities, not all that indifferent from our own, the names of wealthy patrons who had paid to supply different parts of the city to help build the city were often inscribed on the walls of structures and on the city walls themselves. Here, it's not wealthy patrons that are described. It's the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the 12 apostles. John is saying that those who have built this new heaven and this new earth in partnership with God's salvation are those that have lived the story. Those that have lived out God's covenant love to us. John is describing that there's a continuity between the story. God didn't just like invent the story as he went along. There's a continuity in the story that God has been telling. God has kept his promises to Abraham. And through his family and his family of faith, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 4, all of the nations of this earth have been blessed by the presence of God. The names of Jesus' 12 apostles are written on the foundations as Jesus told Peter that upon this rock I will build my church, upon the rock of confession that you, Jesus, are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said that the gates of hell will never prevail against that proclamation. And friends, we, you and I collectively, as we talked about last week, are the embodiment of that promise. We are the outpost of that promise to the world that there is another way, a new creation breaking out right in the midst of this one. And Roman towns often featured three gates on one side of the walls in order to limit access. It makes sense. You don't want to just open your city walls to the enemy. And so they would create kind of a choke point where only people that they wanted to get in could get in. But notice, in the New Jerusalem, the city has three gates on all four sides, symbolically saying to us that people will come to this city from every known direction, that from every tongue and tribe and people and nation will make up this new humanity and will live in this new city in harmony. Verse 15 of chapter 21, it says, The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which the angel was using. Now the measurements here, this is not a geometry lesson, thankfully for me. The measurements here are lined out in intervals of 12. And 12 in Revelation, like if you read the whole of Revelation, you'll actually see intervals of 12 frequently. The, the number, like intervals of 12 in Revelation are the number for the people of God. And so when you see numbers like 144,000 in Revelation, uh, John is symbolically talking about the, the whole of the people of God. Again, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. God's got uh, continuity on that. And Ezekiel had measured the new Jerusalem in Ezekiel 40 and 41. Here in John's vision, the, the angel that measures the new Jerusalem actually, actually expands the size that Ezekiel comes up with by about 2,000 times. The city itself is cubed in shape. It's strange. 12,000 stadia is described as the height of the city. And, and that, just for our measurement purposes, that's something like 1,500 miles high. 
So John is saying the city itself is cubed in shape, that it is as tall as it is wide. Now, just to give you a sense, Mount Everest is about six miles above sea level. So John is saying that this city is so big in scope that it, it reaches to the heavens in a way that we can't even fathom. We can't even breathe oxygen that high up. But the engineering of this new Jerusalem is beyond anything that we can imagine. I love what uh, one of my New Testament professors, Craig Keener, says. He says, what humanity could not accomplish at Babel, a city to the heavens, God grants here in the new Jerusalem as an overwhelming gift. And the cubic shape is not just John saying, look at what God can do when there's no uh, sort of laws of physics. The cubic shape is a reference to the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary of the Jerusalem temple. And I've got a picture of that. Chris, if you want to put that up. You can see this is a rough, you can almost see that this is a rough uh, outline. And at the top there, if you're really passing your eye exam, that purple little section almost all the way up there, the square is the, the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was a place that only the high priest could enter one time a year. So only one person, only one day a year. And what John is saying is that no longer is access to God's presence limited by barriers. No longer is God's presence limited. The cubic shape is saying that the whole city itself makes up the Holy of Holies. He goes on. He says in Revelation 21, 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty, the Almighty and the Lamb. The city itself is the Holy of Holies, the place of God's immediate, overwhelming, manifest presence. Access is no longer limited to one person. God has invited all of creation into his presence. Revelation 22, verse 3 says, Nothing accursed will be found there anymore, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will be no more night. They need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. When the high priest would enter the sanctuary one time a year, he would wear a, a turban on his head with an inscription that said, Holy to the Lord. Now the name of God is written symbolically on the forehead of every inhabitant of this city. Again, calling us to see that we will be the embodiment. Moses said to God, he says, show me your glory, show me your face. And God said, nobody can see my face and live. But Revelation 22 verse 4 says, they will see his face. We will see God face to face. The God who walked in the garden in the cool of the evening now lives with his abundant, never-ending presence in this city. This is who God is, and he, this is the story that he's inviting us into. We go back to chapter 21. It says, The wall is built of jasper, while the city is pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall and the city are adorned with every jewel. And he, he lists off several jewels there. I'm not going to get into the list there. It goes on in verse 24. The nations... We'll walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. People will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will enter it. 
nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That the walls are made of jasper is, is a reference back to the earlier sections of Revelation. God's glory is, is described as appearing like jasper. And the gold in this place is so plentiful, and yet it is different than any earthly gold. When you see earthly gold, it has that metallic sheen to it. Here the gold is translucent. Everything, even the wealth of humanity, is a vehicle to reflect and radiate God's glory and his presence. John then lists these precious stones, the list I didn't read for you because I wanted to uh, save you the pronunciation. But these stones are, are from the high priest's breastplate. Again, John is saying to us, there is no more specific access. Everybody has access to God. The new Jerusalem is a place, too, of new creation culture. Again, we talked about in the second week of this teaching series that God is not just this spirit that's inviting us to, to assent to a list of moral propositions. God is partnering with us. We are made in his image. The city comes down from heaven, so it is fully from God. But God partners with us as he did in the garden, the tabernacle, the temple, the incarnation, that we would beautify this place and that we would steward it well. Now, I don't know how many of you, we bring this up a lot, but if you've ever envisioned heaven as this place where you just do nothing all day, like you just have everything you want and everything that you could ever ask for is right at your beck and call. And if you've ever had that vision and you've said, that sounds terrible. How many of you, when you wake up during the day, you just think like, what am I doing today? What am I conquering? What am I exploring? For so many of us, the notion of heaven as this static place is not that interesting. It's not that exciting. And I would also say that it's not the story that the Bible is telling. From the very beginning, God has been inviting us to steward, to care for, to explore, to order his creation in partnership with him. He's been inviting us to steward human culture, to glorify God, to reflect his goodness. And if he started with that in the garden, it looks like he is continuing that in the new city. And so perhaps, friends, your impulse to engineer, to explore, to make order of, to play, perhaps all of those things are not somehow removed from your life with God, but perhaps they are a direct reflection of the good God who made you. The God who invites you into a story that's big enough for the whole of your life, not just parts of it. Richard Bauckham says this, In the beginning, God had planted a garden for humanity to live in. In the end, he will give them a city. In the new Jerusalem, the blessings of paradise will be restored. But the new Jerusalem is more than paradise regained. As a city, it fulfills humanity's desire to build out of nature a place of human culture and community. It consummates human history and culture insofar as these have been dedicated to God while excluding the distortions of history and culture into opposition to God that Babylon represents. God will not do away with our story in the end, but he will beautify it. He will take it into his hands, multiply it, bless it. Revelation 22, verse 1, says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
Through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The tree of life, the central feature of the Garden of Eden, is now available again, available in abundance. The healing of the nations recalls the promises that were given to Abraham that through his family, all the nations on the earth would be blessed. The fact that the nations are still referenced is important. The fact that we carry our humanity into the new creation. Jesus is not discarding your skin color, your culture, your identity. He's restoring that. He's redeeming that. He's renewing that. We will see all the glory of the nations in their fullness. This is what it means for him to bring healing to the nations. You know, one of my favorite shows was Anthony Bourdain's show where he would travel around parts unknown. And the, my favorite thing about the show is how honoring he was to every single culture, the goodness of those cultures. Through his curiosity, through his joy, he would eat stuff that I was just like, how does he eat that and enjoy it? But he would sit down to a table with people and he would honor their story. He would honor their way of life. And this is what we see. Food is just one aspect of the goodness that so many of us bring. Like how many of us are going to eat Korean food or Mexican food later and be like, God, you're good. You did stuff with these flavors that we could only dream of. Like, thank you, Jesus. And that sense will not cease in the new creation. The glory of these cultures will be brought and put in the right place in light of who God is. And that's so important for us to remember. Revelation 7 says, from every tongue and tribe and nation will, will constitute the people of God. We are embodied people. And that body, as Jesus' resurrected body, his first century Jewish body shows us, has incredible, eternal significance. The tree of life, the central feature of Eden, is available again. The healing of nations, all that brings pain and oppression will be healed and removed. The water from the river of life flows down the middle of the city. Friends, this is a fun Bible study. And I don't know if you've ever felt that tension in a show that you liked. But it's like, how do you draw something that's so beautiful, so epic to a fitting conclusion Many of you have probably watched shows at the end. You're like, what just happened? That was not the show that I loved. Lost. Um, the only ending that could be fitting to a story so epic, friends, is a beginning. The only ending that could fit a story so rampant with God's love and grace with twists and turns is a beginning. C.S. Lewis captures this beautifully. He says, and as he spoke, this is from the last battle, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this, the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, but check this out. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. 
I'm going to invite you to close your eyes because it's almost too beautiful for words. And I want to invite you to use your imaginations. We're talking about city streets of gold. We're talking about a river flowing through the city. We're talking about walls that are 1,500 feet high. It's one thing for me to say it, but I need you to see it. My urgent hope throughout this series has been to somehow get you to see as a church that this story is so much bigger than a set of propositions. We tell stories to capture imaginations because our imagination, what we think is possible, truly directs our hearts, our minds, and our wills. That which we think is good and beautiful and true will be the thing that we run towards. And today as we arrive, with some sense an ending, I want you to see that God is the great storyteller. The story through and through has been about God stopping at nothing to be God with us. The same hands that crafted us from the dust of the ground, that held us through the dark night of exile, that were nailed to the cross to save us, those same hands will put right everything that has gone wrong, will be the bearers of a new creation. All the grief and sadness that we carry in our bones. As Paul writes, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and he will do it. Revelation 21, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. And he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. And to those who in conquer, I will, they will inherit these things. I will be their God. And they will be my children. Ecclesia. From the very beginning of the story, the story has been about home. God has stopped at nothing to be God with us, to be God with you, to bring us back to himself. And today, that is the invitation to come home to his love. Home is not just our future. It is our present. Jesus says to those who love him, that keep his word, that his father will love them and he will come to them and he will make his home with us. And he says this to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. The God of the universe is inviting you into his story today. Let us receive it. Let us find our lives in it.